This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome back to the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. I'm Jeff O'Neill here with Rebecca Shinsky, recording weirdly on Monday, May 17th, 2021. I got my second uh, vaccine shot last week, which promptly sent me into a two-day odyssey of ache uh, <laughs> that <laughs> has <laughs> threw, threw the recording into a tailspin here. Rebecca was out and then uh, on vacation, and then we're going to have um, one of our co-workers fill in, but I was feeling too bad. So here we are on Monday, so a little bit late. Um, but I got my second. It's all fine. And uh, we're here to talk to you about book stuff. Rebecca, how are you doing? I'm good. My vaccines were fully cooked as of Friday. Yeah. Maxinated. So, maxinated. Maxinated. I have not heard that, but yeah. I like it. Can feel free um, to take that. Yeah, I have powered up. Got to see some family mm-hmm. over the weekend, celebrate my oldest nephew's graduation from college, which would have been a milestone in and of itself, yeah. but we got to see the extended family all in one place for the first time since, I think, Christmas of 2019. How weird was that? Was it weird you know, or did it feel okay? It, it felt really good. Um, and there, these are Bob's family members, his side of the family. And so, you know, like I've been around for a long time, but I don't have like right. deep attachments to these folks. And I was really surprised by how emotional it felt huh. to see them and hug yeah. them um, and cool. just catch up with everyone. But the being together felt really beautifully normal. Um, I ate inside a restaurant for the first time and also had a moment of that where there was a group of women celebrating a bachelorette party and like halfway through the meal, they all started singing Going to the Chapel. And there's like, there's a version of me that in a previous part of life might have been annoyed that like I'm having a really nice meal. These women are being rowdy and now they're singing. But it was like, like I started crying into my cocktail, like just little tears coming out of my face of like this is such a beautiful moment of like kind of spontaneous joy and people having a moment of normalcy and it it felt very good i'm feeling i'm feeling encouraged i don't think we're on the other side of this thing yet but it it feels like the light at the end of the tunnel is a little bit closer speaking of crying little tears programming (laughs) note field of dreams book nerd movie club (laughs) coming up uh pretty quick here i think uh, i'm looking at the release calendar i think Two weeks from Wednesday mm-hmm. is one that's going to come out, so we're going to be recording that episode. I watched it last night with uh, Michelle and my kids and uh, my mother-in-law here. Uh, it was beautiful. You know, it's great. I've got a lot to mm-hmm. say about it, of course. Um, one note, my kids thought it was scary. The voice oh, freaked them really? out. Oh, really? Which I had forgotten. It is weird, uh, the, the voice stuff at the beginning. You're in the middle of a cornfield. That's true. Um, which, if you're not from the Midwest or have spent much time there, cornfields are very terrifying. Right, because you get children of the corn. Stuff comes out of the cornfield, don't know what it is. Whereas if you you know have some experience around a field, you're like, that's just there's nothing, literally nothing scary. scary. <laughs> well, it, uh, that I think, man, that just really goes also to how different entertainment is now yeah. than when we were kids. Because I think I was about the age of your oldest when I first mm-hmm. saw Field of Dreams, and we'll talk about it, I'm sure, on the show. But I am just so attached, you know, to that. And I don't remember it being scary. It's really interesting. Yeah, they're they're. 
they're very attuned to I mean they weren't scared but they just thought it was creepy creepy right mm. it's creepier than magical at first and okay. they they liked the movie on the whole but that was their note <laughs> it was creepier than they thought it was going to be it's like okay well there we go there all right let's take our first sponsor break we got some feedback and a whole bunch of other stuff to talk about mm-hmm. today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo this is one I'm actually super excited about. I liked Lee Bardugo's other adult fantasy books. And so I'm really looking forward to this one. It's set in the Spanish Golden Age during a time of high stakes political intrigue and glittering wealth. It follows Luzia, a servant in the household of an impoverished Spanish nobleman who reveals a talent for little miracles. Her social climbing mistress demands Luzia use her gifts to win over Madrid's most powerful players. But what begins as simple amusement takes a dangerous turn. Luzia will need to use every bit of her wit and will to survive, even the help of Guillén Santangel, an immortal familiar whose own secrets could prove deadly for them both. So The Familiar by Lee Bardugo is on sale now. And like I said, it's a must read of the season. It's perfect for anyone who loves history, a little bit of magic, a lot of danger. You can get your copy now at LeeBardugoTheFamiliar.com. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo for sponsoring this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, I'd like everyone to hear me say that wrote in that I appreciate you saying it's fine to not be a cool reader with my (laughs) e-reader. I just, everyone need to hear, I'm not worried about my coolness. Really never have been. (laughs) I was going to say. I wasn't, I wasn't bemoaning my lack of cool. If anything, I revel in it. If anything, I revel in my lack of cool. Yeah, so everyone's I, like, it's fine. You're a real reader. Like, no, no, no. Okay. I, think I see we, what you do, but there we go. Yeah, I think we take lack of coolness just for red here. Yeah, right. That's right. I, I didn't even think it was on the table to reach up and grab coolness by the throat <laughs> and bring it back down to me. But a lot of concern in the notes. Um, I think uh, I think sweet. there was a general sense to that if not quite as artic- if if not quite as expressed as I was saying about how e-reading is not in the white hot center of performative literariness or bookishness. Mm. I do think people had a sense that it's not it's somehow looked down it's not if it's not looked down upon it's not looked up to. Let's put it that way. Maybe those are two okay. meaningfully different kinds of things. Um as we said before, the current narrative about the best way to be a bookish capitalist, and that I think this is important to say, is to buy your hardcover books from local independent bookstores. That's that's the unimpeachable way to buy books, right? I mean, that, that's what it is right now. Um, and e-reading, even if you're going through the, the Kobo 2 step, is not the same. It just isn't mm-hmm. the same. The Kobo 2 um, step. So I, I appreciate your concern for me. But literally, I'm the last person you should be worried about in really any kind of way. Um, So thank you. But I do appreciate everyone writing in. And also just more people saying they love their their Kindle. Um, Especially some say there's some people that like the Nook hardware better, actually, Hmm. than the Oasis. Um, 
Again, this is one of those things where we can get a little tribal about our brand and device affiliations, and that's okay. Um, but the, the for me, the the Amazon ecosystem, I'm too I'm too into that right now on an e-reading experience to get away from it. Um, but maybe maybe in maybe in the great passage of time, I finally set up. Uh, this is kind of behind the scenes stuff, but this is for Rebecca. The, the, mm-hmm. This is for an audience of one. I did set up my Edelweiss account to go yes. directly to my Kindle, mm-hmm. which I gotta say is freaking nice. Slick. It's it pretty, is pretty slick. It is. I, I there's a little bit of setup. It's not as bad as I thought. For some, I guess maybe I looked at it a million years ago, but I was like, God, oh, probably. Edelweiss and getting it to your iPad was always a kind of a bummer. But getting to a Kindle is freaking e. Yeah, I can. I'll tell. Like getting it into the Kindle app on my iPad is one click now. Yeah, it's Um, really nice. Um, So, um, I'm reading some front list that's not out yet in anticipation of our uh um, summer preview draft, Um, and I think, I or uh, not our summer preview draft in our the fall preview. uh, No, no, the um, best books of uh, the first half of the year Mm because there's a couple things I want to get under my belt before we record that. and uh, it's not something I've taken advantage. One of the one of the crazy things is one of the great perks people imagine we have, which we do have, is early access to books and for free. Mm-hmm. And the one I've taken the least advantage of, really, over the last, I haven't read a lot of front list, and I more care about my time than when you know what I re- want to read when I read it than getting stuff for free early. But it is pretty slick, and there's so, there's a couple things on there I wanted to get yeah, to. Yeah, so. I've developed a like pretty seasonal habit now of when mm-hmm. I'm doing the research for those preview shows that we do. I, you know, am looking at titles and I just have an Edelweiss tab open and I download a bunch of galleys like right then and just load up my iPad with stuff to read for the season. And then periodically, as people mention mm-hmm. other things, I might snag them as a one-off, but it's basically like once a quarter, I just put a whole bunch of upcoming front list on my iPad and then do the thing of like, oh, okay, time for a new book. Which one of these feels like the thing I want to read right now? And it's nice to have, it is really nice to have that access. And mm-hmm. I will be happy forever that I'm able to do that with eBooks and yeah. that my mail situation has become much more manageable thanks to COVID. Yeah, that's, so. that's a great point. I, and I got the, the sub, the, or the, the meta point though, in looking through count, there are mm-hmm. too many books, man. Yes. I mean, it is, <laughs> it is ridiculous. And I'm interested in, like, what is MIT Press putting out? But, like, there's just, you can't do it. And one of the great frustra- uh, frustrations, wrong thing, I've always wanted to think about, is there a different way to cover books, right? Could you cover it more like sports or something else like that? And I think there's things people could do differently. We could do differently, blah, 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 where it's more reader-focused in terms of news, like something other than listicles and, you know, opinions and reviews or recommendations mm-hmm. which which are sort of the the holy trinity of book coverage and there's nothing wrong with any of them but they don't they don't do the thing of making i don't know book news consumption a habit like it is mm-hmm. for news or business or politics or anything else like that but boy you, you the the first thing you would have to do is winnow the field in a huge way you, you'd have to really try to figure out like we're not going to worry about covering and I guess this happens already in the review sphere, if you're the New York Times or something like that. Even Publishers Weekly, which tries to cover as much of the waterfront as possible, I don't think they review everything from like, maybe they do review everything from Soft Skull Press or $2 Radio. I don't know if you know that. Email me, mm-hmm. podcast at bookrat.com. But in order to have some kind of way in which you really focus and sort of create a field that's generally interesting is you've got to cut out like 90% of the releases, even from 
publishers people have heard out about, I think. And in realizing and when we're curating our draft lists or our best of, it's like, I mean, here's the truth of it. I'll have read probably by the time we record that, I think I've gotten to about 50 or 55 books this year. Had a good reading okay. year. And about of, of those, I think 30-ish or so are front list. And we haven't talked yeah, about... That's pretty good. Yeah. For me, it's it's unusually good. Um, and we haven't talked about how many we're going to pick, but let's say I pick five. Let's say we each pick five. Mm-hmm. So really you're reading, I'm recommending five out of 30. <laughs> really, I'm serious. I mean, what, but what yeah. else are you going to do from a one person point of view? You don't have another choice. Right. Yeah. So anyway, uh, I don't know why I got off of that. We're on Kindles, we're on Edelweiss, we're on there's so many books. There we go. So we're down the rabbit hole too. There's just too many books and um, it's it's very tough. And it makes it easy to understand why publishers' number one complaint in marketing and publicity is how to break out a book because there's too many. And how yeah, to get people to care like, about something you don't care about. Right. It's not right like the up. field of movies where on any given week there might be like yeah. maybe in the middle of the summer there are two or three big mm-hmm. movies in the same week. But I I think and I think we've talked about for a long time here that publishing and the state of the world for readers would be better in a lot of ways if there were fewer books and the average quality of each individual book got dragged up yeah. in that process. I mean, again, we're going down a rabbit hole a bit, but <laughs> it's, it's some of it is that it's so inexpensive to make a book as opposed to a movie or even, frankly, like a CD. You know, CD. I'm a thousand years old. To cut a record or to cut a track, right? right? It's just, right. you know, it's, it's a woman and her PC and time and someone mm-hmm. willing to pick well, it up. And you've got digital-only publishers, and right. so you don't even doing the printing and packaging in that kind of a way there. So... You and can unless, get a lot. Of, you can fl- the zone is flooded. Let's put it yeah, that way. Yeah, unless you're James Patterson, Nora Roberts, like that level of right. sales and associated advance for it. A big advance is a million dollars plus whatever it takes mm-hmm. to produce the book, and that's still such a tiny fraction tiny. of the budget for just a regular movie. Not like not like you have to go make the new installment of the Avengers or whatever. Right. Just like a regular box office movie, that couple million bucks all in is so small comparatively. Yeah. Yeah, that really struck me. I was reading, oh, I, I, I don't know if you're going to watch it, plan to watch it. I'm not sure I am, but The Underground Railroad was released on Amazon Prime over yes. the weekend. I'm going to. I am girding my walls. I'm not sure. I, I'm legitimately not sure if I'm going to watch it. Not because I don't. It sounds incredible, and I read a long piece in The Times about it, and they've done all mm-hmm. kinds of interesting things around it. The The sub point here was in that piece, Barry Jenkins was talking about how their total budget for Moonlight, which won the Academy Award for Best Picture, right. was $1.5 million, mm-hmm. which is a tiny, tiny film budget, but it's bigger than any advance you're going to see right now outside of like the Obamas sort of of the world. Right. And to give you some sort of scale, it's like the top of the book scale is the bottom mm-hmm. of the, the movie scale. And by the way, they, Jenkins, I think, said they probably spent $1.5 million a day shooting Underground Railroad. Yeah. So just as an order of magnitude <laughs> away there. So yeah, it, it's, a, it's a wonderful point that even the big, even the big fish are, fish are not that big mm-hmm. in this particular pond. Um, so it makes it really difficult to have something like a. I'm not sure mainstream is the right word, but some sort of even shared sensibility of what books are interesting to uh, the middle of the bell curve of readers. It's, right. It's, tough it's to know. right. The the proliferation of streaming has really moved us away from having anything like a monoculture in TV and movies, but we're a couple orders of magnitude away from that already in the world of books. Movies is, I think, a pretty good, it's it's a pretty good, it it would be a more ideal, let's put it that way, version of it, where in any given week, there might be six to eight 
you know, legitimate movies that aren't sort of vanity projects or, you know, weirdos. Um, <laughs> and you could, as a film critic, watch all six to eight movies that are relevant in a given week. You know, one a day, and you're at, that's not insane by any stretch mm-hmm. of the imagination to try to do. With books, in any given week, there's between zero and 15 <laughs> relevant books and i'm not sure how you how you would manage it right you, yeah the, the, the stand the over under for number of books that people are going to ever hear of in a given week frankly is zero like people being the larger sort of american mm-hmm. public but there's 15 there could be 15 books that a interested prosumerish reader you know like us or lib or someone else lib you don't why am i saying lib? that's that's not fair comparison to, to us for anybody. Like us, there's like 10 there could be 10 that like yeah i'd read that and if you're a pretty serious reader like I am, if I'm really cooking, I'm going to read two to three a week for a year. Yeah, so that, where, that's the, where I am. Right. Yeah. The first week, the first Tuesday of June is huge, huge. this year. Like, I think a, a full That's why third. I was trying to get on Edelweiss because I'm like, June yeah. 1st, I got to, there's yes. like three books coming right. out that day I want to have under my belt. A full third of our summer preview draft, I think, was just from June 1st or that yeah. first yeah. Tuesday of yeah. June releases. It's It's bonkers. It is wild. And I'll say also looking at the fall a little bit while I was on Edelweiss because mm-hmm. I don't know how to navigate anything. I sort of was on fall catalogs accidentally. <laughs> Falls a murderer's row. I think my gut that I said about the, our summer draft mm-hmm. um, was rightish in terms of it was, if we compare it to what the fall is going to be, and maybe it's always this year. It is. Th- that the, especially for the kinds of books maybe I'm interested in, which I'm sort of a commercial upmarket, ugh, mm-hmm. barf, uh, reader. Um, fall is where they you know i'm an oscar i'm an oscar contender reader up. yeah that's kind of where that's, i am that's, that's just fall. what i have to admit that oh my mm-hmm. guess why why hide from it so <laughs> anyway uh yeah but that that first week of june is, is a murderer's row um okay uh i guess while we're on that subject so we this was going back a few weeks we were talking about what percentage of our readers have read even the biggest books in the world Oh, right? yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make a poll that's going to have a link in the show notes that I would okay. love, 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 love listeners to fill out. And it's going to have a list of 10 books. And all I want you to do, if you would, humor us and also give us material for a future segment, is just for each of them, you'll click yes or no if you've read the book. Right? That's yes or okay. no. And Rebecca, what I w- I'm going to do right now is I'm going to give you the nine I've come up with. And then I thought... <laughs> We could come up with the 10th together. Like, okay. what am I missing here? Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. And then if we need to switch anything out, and these are all kind of doing different things. So I want to go from kind of canon to book rap podcast forward selections, if you, if you, catch, <laughs> if you catch my name. Got meaning. it. Mm-hmm. You got it? Um, so I guess I have 10. Well, from let, canon to wheelhouse? Yeah, yeah. So actually, I've, I've, no, I'm looking at this because I'm having trouble. I've got 11. So let's winnow it down to 10, and then we can talk about if anything you've got in ideas we could switch anything out for. Okay. I'm throwing out Shakespeare just to say I'm looking at novels, okay? Okay. Novels or, or book-length works. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm not doing any, you know, I'm not doing poetry, anything like that. I'm not doing theater, okay. anything like that. So I, my, my number one sort of, Canon Canon draft pick is Pride and Prejudice to get mm, on the board. Okay, um, so that's what I'm. I've, I've got number one there, and this is not in order of um, percentage. I think over read. I'm kind of going oldest to newest. All right. Then from there, I'm going to go one step over into American Canon, thinking like, mm-hmm. what did kids have to read in middle school to high school? And I'm going Huck Finn number two okay. there. 
from here it gets a little bit dicey i have to say um i think next i go great gatsby is right. number three because then we're now we're in you're in high school and you're a serious reader in college we're picking up here mm-hmm. from there i'm going new canon so some i think huck finn and gatsby on a lot of syllabi in high school and college of American Lit Surveys has been replaced by their eyes or watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. I've got okay. that number four. Mm-hmm. Um, from there, we go to, and this has been, this is things adults have been reading over the last four or five years because of Trump. You know, it's one of the classics of really 20th century literature in any um, you know, field or genre mm-hmm. is 1984 by George Orwell. Okay. Um, then I've got one more sort of new classic, and this probably would be my number one draft pick for highest percentage read is To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm-hmm. And then from here, I'm going into new canon kinds of stuff where probably, well, maybe one more you may have read it in school. This is a transitional you may have read in school to you may have read on your own as a reader. I'm going Beloved by Toni okay. Morrison, number seven. And then I'm into the modern bestsellers kind of a mode. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll throw them all into... So my most book right forward one, of course, is Gilead by Marilyn Robinson. <laughs> then I'm going to go to... Um, a, the only nonfiction on my list, just because it's sold, is Educated by Tara mm-hmm. Westover. And then I tried to come up with two recent commercial-slash-literary crossover titles. And I've got Little Fires Everywhere by Celeste Ng. Okay. And the vanishing half by Britt Bennett, which continues to sell. So that's the most modern one that, like, you know, if mm-hmm. if you've read a literary-ish novel of the last year, it's probably the vanishing half by Britt Bennett, a frontless title. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are my eleven. Any any glaring omissions or wild inclusions that we should amend here in some? I mean, so we're ignoring crawdads. I am ignoring crawdads mostly because we crapped all over. <laughs> You think we successfully prevented the listenership yeah. of this podcast from having I mean, that experience? I guess, I guess I'm not that interested in that one. I, this is okay. not really to try to pick the 11 most. I was more looking for a range of kind of almost like a bell curve of I see. very okay. few maybe to, mm-hmm. un, in some cases to To Kill a Mockingbird, I guess was my prior. I, and you'll notice here what's not on this list. There's not YA. There's not fan. I'm not doing um, yeah, I'm just trying to I'm not doing Narnia I'm or childhood classics or anything like that. I'm surprised there's not a Colson Whitehead on this list. I, I thought about that, but I didn't know where to. Because here's the thing: it's a new classic that doesn't sell as well as Vanishing Half Reducated. Did it? It just mm-hmm. doesn't. Yeah. So it's somewhere between the beloved sort of new canon and contemporary commercial literary bestsellers. I, I, I don't know what to do. We could put Underground Railroad. I'm, I'm happy to do it. I just, I'm just not sure. Um. So that would be one there. I mean, I don't. We, I don't know why ten. I mean, I could. Why not do? Uh, why not do eleven? <laughs> We're in charge here. Yeah, there's no, there are no rules here, as James Earl Jones says. Is field of dreams. Um. Yeah, Underground Railroad. I guess is. I guess that's. That's that's when you're guessing. Guess you know a uh, future canon, right? Mm-hmm. If current to future canon, which I don't really have, on this list because beloved is canon. I, I'm not comfortable enough. I guess Gilead, it's not as important as Underground Road. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. 
That's fine. It's important like we could to do us. 12. We can do 12. <laughs> That's fine. That's good. Any I, I didn't put Dickens, you know, I didn't put anything. You know, I started oh, I wonder Pride and Prejudice. About, like, I don't know. Interpreter of Maladies, something like that. Paperback favorites. I was thinking about paperback favorites. That that whole category. We could go mm-hmm. Gone Girl, The Lovely Bones, you know, Water for Elephants. Uh, well, all and kinds of interpreter things. Interpreter like for Maladies lives in that upmarket, award winning, but also commercial yeah. place. And it holds there, up. The or, problem uh, there is that she's fallen off the face of the earth. And I read her new book, which I really liked. Okay. But no one's going to read that book. Mm. It's just, she's, she's, abdicated could you go white teeth zadie i mean oh. is that a, who's a little more au courant i don't know maybe maybe hmm. Hmm. i mean at this point we're kind of deciding between 13 I, oh maybe like kind of... crazy rich asians There's enough people. I'm, I'm serious. I haven't read this, mm-hmm. so I'm biased. A lot of people read that book. A lot of people. Yeah. Read that book. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A lot more people read that book than read Underground Railroad. I would right. bet right. money on. Right. There's probably a couple. Like you know, th- then there was. There's the whole, and we we're we're past this moment now a little bit of the, the the Gone Girl and its daughters. Mm-hmm. Moment. Um, <laughs> yeah. The Gone Girl on the Train at the Window. I mean, I guess it would be something like Kristen Hanna now, the historical fiction, um, mm. female-led historical fiction, which seems to be the really big one. I was having the damnedest time coming up with a nonfiction that felt anything like that's in the ballpark of anything. Maybe Wild by Cheryl Strayed, like a Roxanne Gay title. I was having yeah, a really hard time. How to be Anti-Racist is... maybe would be interesting to put on Maybe. There. Yeah, I think sadly a lot more people bought How to Be Anti-Racist than yeah. probably yeah. read it. Um, right. Wild is probably the other big memoir of the last, mm-hmm. what, 10 years? When Breath Becomes Air, sold a million mm-hmm. copies. I get, you know what? I wonder how many... Becoming. Yeah, or The Warmth of Other Suns. Yeah, I, it's I think, had, like, I think it's had a Becoming, long tail. actually, I hadn't really thought that recent, but that would be interesting to see. Um, lucky 13 there. So if we go Becoming, <laughs> Underground Railroad, Pride and Prejudice, Gilead, Huckfin, 1984, Little Fires Everywhere, Educated, Vanishing Half, Gatsby, To Kill a Mockingbird, Beloved, and Their Eyes Were Watching God. That's a pretty interesting list for a listener of this kind of a show. Like if we're doing SF, mm-hmm. yeah, or Ramets or What's Up and Why, that's something different. Um, now, would you like to take... I, let's, I assume we both take To Kill a Mockingbird with our number one overall draft pick for percentage red. Is there anything else you'd put above that? I think Pride and Prejudice is going to be close. Very going to be close. Yeah, that's a great point. Because I do think readers go to readers who miss Pride and Prejudice in their Mm. school years are more likely to go back to it to like catch up than Mm. are likely to go back to To Kill a Mockingbird. It's just a sense that I have from the internet. I mean, people like Pride and Prejudice. Well, do that. Is that true, though? I, well, and there are so many, I think they do. And there are so many spinoffs. Like there is a whole ongoing fan culture right. around Pride and Prejudice and then other mm-hmm. art inspired by or building off of right. Pride and Prejudice. Everything from you know spoofs to just, you know, different genre takes and updates. And oh. I think there's more, I honestly think there's actually more affection for Pride and Prejudice among readers than there is for To Kill a Mockingbird. 
Yeah, you might be right. I think there's probably more affection for Austin, if only because she has more books. Where with Harper mm. Lee, you've got To Kill a Mockingbird and then whatever we call Ghost at a Watchman now. We don't yeah. need to relitigate that because that's not fun for anyone, including us. And we've established what the answer is. Yes, right. <laughs> uh, after that, I... I guess just in terms of curating, basically that people have heard of it at all, mm -hmm. not even positive or negative, I guess curating is a positive, but just in terms yeah. of brand awareness, Huck Finn, mm -hmm. Gatsby. Gatsby, then after that, I'd be curious if my sense of the syllabic penetration of their eyes were watching God is has made it into mindshare, because that is... Mm. Gatsby and Catcher in the Rye are getting a lot of times supplanted, and rightly so, let's be honest with yes. this, um, I think, by their eyes were watching God. But then how is, it, how is 1984, what's, what function of people that respond to, and again, this is a one sample size, the people <laughs> listening to the show are a different breed of, of cat, and we love you all very much. Um, but like, is Vanishing Half going to be in the ballpark of 84? Is it going to be way? I mean, you could tell me a couple of different outcomes here, and I wouldn't be that surprised when we get into the middle of the pack. Oh, I think that's recency bias. Like, I think in the middle of the pack, still, the power of the syllabus exceeds current bestsellers, and yeah, the 1984 yeah. would be wow. way above mm -hmm. Vanishing Half. Like, just it has every, like, our lifetime's long tail, <laughs> really, right, 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 to support it. And the same for Little Fires Everywhere, and even the same for Educated. It was mm -hmm. huge in. It's you know big year or couple years when it first came out, but folks are not still having you know like current conversations about it. It's not no still in, no it's yeah. not still in the zeitgeist. And nineteen eighty four is one of those that like is just part of literary language now. Or there was this great piece last week. I can't remember what the publication was, but about familect, which is the like, yeah it, saw the, that really right, good. which is like the language that your family mm -hmm. develops, where you have all your little inside sayings. I the headline was like, "Why do you talk so weird when you're at home?" <laughs> and mm -hmm. and 1984 is one of those things that people will refer to as just like anything's kind of dystopian or like huh. government overreaching feels 1984ish. Um, I think it's often used incorrectly, but like even folks who haven't read 1984 are familiar with what the idea is. It just exceeds its own existence. No, that, that's in that true. Way. Yeah. I mean, and when you're filling out this survey, please do not lie. Don't NPR. Yeah, this. tell us the truth, please. We want the truth. It's anonymous. First of all, I don't need your yeah, comment. We, won't, just tell we us don't know you. We don't care. I don't care. <laughs> that's the other thing. We don't care. When we're not, you'll notice that we're not sitting here making arguments for why everyone should read any, no, any no, especially no, the no. old ones. Especially yeah. the old ones, yeah. Um, again, if we go with our lucky 13, the only one I haven't read is Becoming, uh, but I have read the rest. So that's also, again, I'm selecting from my own yeah, there's, pool in this way. There's nothing on the list that, that I haven't read either, yeah. yeah. Um, would you like to guess, percent? so let's go with To Kill a Mockingbird. <laughs> Okay. Somewhere between zero and one hundred percent of respondents <laughs> will have read *To Kill a Mockingbird*. Any sense? I, I'm a here. You know what? I'll put I'll put my head on the pike first. I'll I'll take okay. this one. I'm going with forty-four percent of respondents ah. will say they've read *To Kill a Mockingbird*. I was going to go. What were you going to say? For the big fat middle of the bell curve and say sixty-eight. Okay. Um, let's do this for two more titles. You want to pick the second? You can You can have the second pick of um, percentage okay. pick. Um, I'm going to take Beloved. Beloved. And I will guess that 20% will have read it. 
that's real, real close to what I was going to think. I'm going 15%, so I'll be okay. in the ballpark there. And then let's go with... What, what's the most inter- What's the most interesting one for you to find out on this list? Is there one that you you really are feel at sea about? Well, I don't want to know the answer to the Gilead question. <laughs> lie to me. <laughs> yeah, lie to us lie about to that me. one. No, no, don't lie to me. That means there's so many more people to convert. That's that's I'm choosing. Let's. To see. I'm curious about Little Fires Everywhere. Yeah. Because okay. Big paperback book club book and TV adaptation. Yep. But our sense might be this could be the lowest one, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is it lower than Beloved or higher than Beloved? Oh. <laughs> tough. Very tough. That is tough. I don't know. Let's, I'm going to leave that as a question mark. Yeah. I'm not committing. <laughs> yeah, not committing. Yeah, I guess that's our biggest question mark because it is recent – but also not too recent, like it's not this year. Um, continues to sell, was an adaptation. Only a couple of these don't have either a huge media presence in the form of being an Obama book or an adaptation out or ever have come out. Really, we're only looking mm-hmm. at Gilead and Educated and Vanishing Half at this point. There's yeah. been adaptations of everything else. Some of them not very good, but the less said, the better of those things. Okay. <laughs> Well, that should be interesting. Um, if you, it'll be a link in the show notes in your podcast player of choice. You can see it there when we, you know, I always, I always list the links we discuss. Also, if you go to bookriot.com slash listen, you can navigate to the show notes that way. If you're listening, I'm not sure what other way, what way could people listen that they're not getting the, I guess if you're listening through and like in a, um, sentient, a semi-sentient puck of some kind, you mm-hmm. can't look at the show notes immediately. Um, anyway, all right, uh, sponsor break and, uh, get on with the rest of the show. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I guess in the world of follow-up, um, <laughs> SNS. Oh, boy. You know, there is a digging yourself a bigger hole mm-hmm. element to what's happening here. You dropped this link in this morning. I hadn't read and seen the whole thing. What's the uptake here? Go go <laughs> read the whole thing if you want. But <laughs> there's a story behind this story here about how this is even out. Yeah. The uptake is, I think, you know, the piece is from The New Republic by Alex Shepard. And the headline is the uptake. Simon and Schuster staffers are still very pissed about Mike Pence's book deal. <laughs> um, and the detail here is that in the ongoing conversations that are happening, the conflict that's occurring at Simon & Schuster between the staff and leadership, or really, it seems like between the staff and now directly with the CEO, Jonathan Karp, there was another town hall call to discuss these things. And Karp, I don't know who he's getting his like crisis management. I think the answer is no one. (laughs) PR training. I hope the answer is no one because otherwise he's burning money, um, getting bad advice. But a recording of the call, like, first of all, someone recorded the call because of course they did. And a recording was shared with the New Republic. So now we have some direct quotes from that conversation. 
And CARP is interestingly, but I guess not surprisingly, presenting this as a binary where he says on one side, there are staffers who believe in social justice. And on the other, there are those who believe in, quote, free speech. And early in the conversation, CARP lays out this binary that he thinks is occurring. And he tells the staff that, and I'm quoting now, what's going on right now is largely about a conflict that's occurring between people who want, it's basically progress and social justice within the company. And it's in conflict, the publisher's rights to publish what they want to publish. And then he goes on to say how we square that conflict is complicated. We're going to have these conversations about things that people object to on a personal basis. Ethics are subjective. It's not really our place as publishers to impose an ethical standard. We can impose a legal standard, but I I don't think we can impose an ethical standard. And he goes on and just this is digging so much further into the hole, I think. But then later on, he says the world is nuanced. It's not a binary place. We have to embrace the complexity of these decisions. And now staffers who have spoken with the New Republic have you know, called this a disappointment. They've referred to it as condescending, which I think it is an embarrassment, a mess. That's probably the most succinct description. But I think there's, I mean, there's so much to take apart here just in the statement that ethics are subjective and that he sees this as a conflict between people who want social justice and and the and the publisher and seems to think that the wanting of social justice conflicts with the publisher's rights to publish what they want to publish. And that is very revealing of, I think, his fundamental misunderstanding of what's happening here. Mm -hmm. I don't think any of the staff of Simon & Schuster would dispute that the publisher has the right to do this. This is not about the publisher's rights. It's about what the publisher should do. It is an ethical question. And Mm. later on in the call, this is maybe the most damning thing from the recording. He is asked to acknowledge that the Trump administration directly endangered Muslims, immigrants, queer people, and people of color. And he refused to answer saying that he didn't believe his opinion was relevant. So you have someone who believes that all ethics are subjective, which like we have as a society and as humanity in general have agreed on some basic rules that we think should not be broken Mm -hmm. (laughs) for the good of all people. And I don't know what he thinks he's achieving here. I wish that I could know, like, how did he feel walking off that call? Did he think mission accomplished? Um, But this looks to me like if you work at Simon & Schuster, you're getting... A the big very... middle one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> and and you're getting you're getting a very clear look now at where your CEO is coming from in that he's his judgment as the CEO about something as basic as did an administration endanger people with their policies. He thinks that judgment is irrelevant that ethics are subjective and irrelevant to the working of the publisher. And he sees the push for acknowledging that the material that they put out into the world, they have some responsibility for. He sees that as in conflict to their right to publish what they want. Mm -hmm. And that is an old way of thinking about this that I, 
I am glad actually that all this is coming out. Like, let him just keep talking himself into a hole. He's just giving his staff and anyone who objects to this decision more material to object to. And this is only going to get more and more coverage if he continues to dig in this way. Like, just lay it out. Let us see you, I guess. That's where I am now. It's like, okay, well, now we see it. We fully see this person in leadership for who he is. And if you're at Simon & Schuster, at least you know now. This is a really crappy thing to have to know is true about your company or about your boss, but at least now you know it for real. It's... there's two. There, there's at least two things that are notable here. One, as we've talked about, too, is the position of wanting to say that the publication of any given book is part of the quote-unquote higher calling of publishing, mm-hmm. at the same time saying, I cannot, <laughs> ethics are subjective. So this this the role of speech is that All speech all the time is good, which is everyone knows that's a bogus straw man Mm -hmm. argument. No one actually thinks that. The question here is, is any given work, any given act of publishing in service of the great discourse of the the, participating (laughs) in the marketplace of ideas, right? And that, you know, most things that you're going to put out into the world that are interesting at all, some people are going to be upset about now. That's We know this from doing our own little thing, right? Some people are going to be mad about stuff we do. Mm-hmm. The question is, are you mad enough about the thing to put it out in the world? <laughs> and clearly not, right? And clearly this is not over the line. And clearly there's something here that's being unsaid, which is they don't want don't want to not publish the book. Does that make right. sense? I mean, mm-hmm. there's, yeah, not, there's not as even as much... If- there's it's not even little, as much like performance of conflict of like yeah, we hear you and it's this you know this administration was very tough and there's a lot of things I personally didn't agree with doing but mm-hmm. having said that this is a world historical document and we are one of the major world publishers and this is the area we play in and we make tough calls all the time I think this is a tough call I hope you see that it's a tough call that we're not behind the book in any particular way except that we're in the business of publishing major books. And this is a major book. Yeah, And you've got to be honest. I think you have to be honest about I, it. I think there's, there's sort of retreating to, you know, Corinthian columns of the grand tradition of whatever to say this is and, what we do and you better shut up about it. But well, that's and, not what people are asking for, I don't think. Right, but I think that's what he believes. I think that's what we're seeing yeah, here right. yeah, is yeah, that yeah, yeah. Carp actually believes this, that... I agree with you. It would have been better if he had indicated this was tough Mm -hmm. and here is how we landed on this thing. But it seems to me that this is not a tough decision for Jonathan Karp and that he's frustrated with this pushback and the presentation that there are opposing ideas and that those two opposing sides are between social justice and freedom of speech really misunderstands what both of those things are. Uh And he says, unfortunately for some of you, we're choosing the freedom of expression and the right that publishers have to choose the books they want to publish. And again, no one has said that Simon & Schuster doesn't have a right to publish this book. The question is, should they publish this book? And that is, I guess, the question of the social justice side. But setting like this is a false binary that he's set up that he's misdefined the terms here or and I don't know if that's. I don't think they're intentionally misdefined. I think he 
thinks that this is what's happening. That the, I think just Jonathan Karp sees this as tension between social justice and freedom of speech. And he draws a comparison between the duty of publishers and something that the Supreme Court Justice, um, Chief Justice John Roberts, applied to his own work where he talks about judges being like baseball umpires. And Karp says, I wish there were a uniform way of doing things. I think back on what Justice John Roberts said when he was being confirmed for the Supreme Court, and he talked about judges as being like umpires, and they call balls and strikes. That's really what publishers do. Now, it's interesting to me that the CEO of a publisher thinks his function and the function of his company is the same thing as what the Supreme Court is supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. And I think he's very wrong. Or... Or if you're not wrong, or if that's the way you think about it, then the key, well, the underlying disagreement here is between the role of the employees. What's the relationship of the employees to the publisher? Are they or are not part of, quote unquote, the publisher? Because this sort of says that we are the publisher decision maker and you are not. And there could be a world in which this is a minority opinion. Let's say we you know we got the thing about the petition. What if Simon and Schuster pulled its employees? Let's we'll keep it simple, full time employees for whatever reason. What percentage of them have to say no? I don't want you to publish this book for Carp or whoever is making the decision there to say we don't want to publish this book. Is it five percent, fifty one percent, eighty percent? I think this is the this is the thing under here is like what what is the what kind of say is a publisher willing to give to staff? Is it any? It sounds like it's some. It's not determinative, and it's in that messy middle, uh, in the middle. But what, what's weird is there's there's a there, the cognitive distance I'm seeing. You're picking up on slightly a one I think is important, but the one I'm seeing here is the world is not a binary place. We have to call balls and strikes. Well, wait a minute. Balls and strikes <laughs> right. are binary. Right. So your binary is either to publish something or not publish something. You have binary decisions to make, and it's not that quite simple how much money and blah, blah, blah. But functionally, the the first decision is whether or not you're going to publish the book. So the world, your world is a binary place. Yeah, <laughs> you, the, your, your, your world is, and something's out. Why is this and, a ball, Why is this a strike? Is yeah, interesting. And, That's not right, really the, answered here, except that I get to call strikes. That's the answer right. is it's yeah. a strike because some things are strikes. No, no, no. We're asking why is this a strike? And I think that's There's, the thing where you asked that question you did of um, do you think and he's like, it's not my opinion. Well, wait, you just said you're an umpire. Right. Exactly. It's talking out of both sides of his mouth in a way that I don't think he realize it doesn't read to me like he realizes mm-hmm. he's doing and it's really insulting if he thinks that this is all good logic that people should just be on board with um this is you know you're right the decision to publish a book or not is binary the reasons for that decision are not binary or Mm. are likely not binary so what are the reasons and what's the defense other than we have a right to do it Mm. like well for nobody said you didn't why yeah. are you doing? <laughs> yeah, no, no one's. It's not about rights. It's really, not about it's their. Not about it's right. not about their rights. And just the like, this is very troubling to me. Not just in the concept of, or not in the context of the Mike Pence book, but the CEO of one of the five, now four, really biggest publishers in the country, thinks that social justice and freedom of speech can't coexist. And if you are a person who is pushing for more diverse workplaces for equity and inclusion in your workplaces who wants to be able to believe you will see change when your corporation makes a statement 
that black lives matter or the queer lives matter or that trans lives matter. Seeing the CEO roll out and say, this is a conflict between social justice and freedom of speech is not going to give you faith in that. And it shouldn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, again, there's a lot of naughtiness here um, to untangle and principally among them, I think is, the employees, the body politic of publishers, that publishers are just made up of people and some people have different decision-making qualities. I don't feel like this way of doing things is going to stand. I don't think it's going to go well. Um, This was fascinating to me. There was some, it sounds like um, Shepard did some talking to people who were there behind Mm -hmm. or um, anonymously to get their take. Some, some people said it didn't go well. Some senior employers praised Carp for his openness to questions, noting it was uncharacteristic for a CEO as well as the good. I think that's the thing that's striking to me is this openness to questions and having conversations is now the job of a CEO in a company. That, this goes back and, to the base camp thing. Like this top down, we're going to make decisions and then deal with that. I don't think, I don't think that's going to go away, especially for these left leaning you know, knowledge work kinds of industries. Yeah, I don't and think this rule by fiat I, is going to play. That's an old model. That's an old yeah, paradigm. I think the memo that CARP hasn't gotten and that the base camp guys hadn't gotten is that the being openness to questions and holding things like town hall meetings is not the end. That's not like now you've achieved your no. leadership. It's the beginning. Mm-hmm. And this is not a good or successful execution of that responsibility as a CEO. It's not productive on behalf of his company, Mm -hmm. what we can see here laid out in quotes from this recording. Yeah. I mean, is this the only, the the thing that, again, I wouldn't want to be in this position for, and I I would never be in this position. There's there's no way I would be in this kind of position, but if I did find myself in this position and maybe this is happening, you know, you want to give people some benefit of the doubt though. It doesn't feel like this is the case, but like, what kind of listening was happening in, in these right. situations? Like, what kind of, what kind of learn? Did did doesn't feel like Carp has learned anything, right? right. It's just, uh, it's it's almost like um, cross examination and rebuttals rather than mm-hmm. listening and nodding and saying I didn't see it that way. I hear what you're seeing. You know, I think we need to think about this. Here's my perspective. Here's the company's perspective. And um, there was a lot of this is a lot of justification and defense, and not a lot of listening in conversation um and those are all things that should have happened before a difficult decision was made as we said before and and the things that made this thing go sideways the first of all is seem seeming to not understand you are crossing the road and then get hit by the truck it's like i didn't even know there were trucks on roads i didn't even know it was on a road um but then i think a lot of the blindnesses that cascaded from that continue to show up they just continue to show up to be if i invoke free speech if i invoke the the almost decades-long history of major publishing as we know it. <laughs> this is not going back to the pillars of the earth stuff here, by the way. P- yeah, um, it's, it's and I think it neglects else. that the workforce intends and is holding mm-hmm. leadership accountable in new and bigger ways than they have before in history mm-hmm. and, and in different ways than they have before. And one thing... I guess a smaller detail of this that I'm really curious to see how it plays out is one of the ways that CARP has defended giving a book deal to Mike Pence and also to Kellyanne Conway, who, as Alex Shepard points out in this piece, is the person who 
coined the term alternative facts is that their deals are contingent on the books being truthful. Mm. And the first question I have there is, so does that mean that Simon and Schuster fact is fact checking <laughs> these books? Right. And if you work at Simon and Schuster and you know they're not getting fact checked, I, I would expect that that information is coming out. Like, because publishing sort of famously doesn't fact check a whole lot of nonfiction and a whole lot of memoirs. So are these getting fact checked? What is the commitment to these books being truthful? And how are they going to how are the publishers going to ensure that that, you know, because in the past, when political figures have put Mm -hmm. out memoirs that have contained lies, they have the publisher has come out being like, well, it was on the author to get the book fact checked. It was part of the deal, and they the author has failed, which is just passing the book. Yeah. You know, on frankly, that's the best case I can make, even for myself, to think that I would be not only okay with, but actually advocate for a major publisher putting out a Mike Pence book is if they said, and we're going to give this New Yorker fact checker level scrutiny because mm-hmm. we want this document to be authoritative and backed up and a full accounting insofar as it's possible here, even if it's not a full accounting, that it's not going to be full of riddles and lies and propaganda. And we have the resources to do that. Mike Pence has agreed. I mean, I'm now writing the press release and Mike Pence has agreed that that's what he wants as well. And we think this is part of our mission, right? To put Mm -hmm. out important documents into the world. And if this goes to some some fly-by-night conservative publisher making the quick a buck, who knows what that document's going to look like? We don't want that document to be out in the world. We want to do the thing that publishing can do here and make some kind of... We want to be a part of the creation and um, establishment of this as a true document from Mike Pence. Yeah. Now, I, I don't think I still want to be in the business, but that's a lot <laughs> different than ethics are subjective. Like, it's a completely different it is, argument. It is. It's a completely different argument. And Alex Shepard notes in this piece that CARP's stated requirement for the books being truthful has not yet been matched with a plan to employ mm-hmm. a fact checker for these authors to keep their side of the bargain. And one senior editor told Shepard, there's a problem common to every memoir, which is that you can only fact check them to a certain point. Mm-hmm. And then Shepard points out, not every memoir, not every memoirist, though, has the power to affect the national interest. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, Jonathan Carp at one point, I guess, makes a reference to Henry Kissinger and how Simon and Schuster had published some of his work. And this senior staffer tells Shepard, I think it's quite possible that something will be said in this book by Pence that not only reflects in an interesting way on his time as vice president, but has effects on his future, especially if he's running for president and might even have negative effects on his run for president. We just don't know. And nobody knows that's the mystery and the glory and the curiosity of book publishing. We don't know. And I would argue that we've had books for the last like six years now that contained revelations about Donald Trump that should have public opinion against him strongly enough for him to have been removed from office, not elected in the first place for the 2020 election to not have been as close as it was. And they did not make a bit of difference Mm -hmm. or in a, in a public policy facing way they did not. So why are we being asked to believe at this point that Mike Pence might reveal something that would hurt himself? Like maybe we learned from the last five years. I certainly hope that we did, but I'm very skeptical that Mike Pence could reveal anything in this memoir that would actually affect 
his shot at running for the presidency, especially given the choices that the GOP has been making in the last couple of months. Yeah. Um, All right. I'm not sure we've got much else (laughs) new to say there, except that there's not much news. Another installment in the land war over this book and the Maginot line still is is there. If you're Jonathan Carb and you're reading this this morning, are you thinking you're going to hold any more town hall calls? I mean, I mean, the thing we haven't said is, will any of this matter? It's an open question. Will it matter in the long run? that these town halls happened, that there was all these things going on. And how will we know? I think it's interesting to think about as well. Yeah, I think I'm landing on the side of it won't matter in terms of will the book get published. Simon & Schuster seems very committed to defending that choice and going forward with Mm -hmm. it. So the vector of mattering then is going to be about how it impacts the staff and if or how staff respond in a meaningful way. Yeah. And it's another, it is for sure, and especially now that PRH is going to be owning SNS and really, you know, really moving the needle even further in the way of where the places you can work are in major publishing, um, that's another kind of an untalked about effect of market dominance Mm -hmm. is that there's not as many places for employees to choose from to work. Now we still have HarperCollins and Hachette and Macmillan, and you could work in many different fields. But, you know, with with Penguin Random House pushing 70, 75, 79% of trade publishing, if you don't want to work for a company that publishes Mike Pence, You've only got a few other choices. And the other choices, according to this article, we're all bidding for the Mike Pence book anyway. Mm-hmm. So there's a there is a there is a element that could be negotiation not the right, but sort of game theory from the part of publishing writ large. Capital P executive C level publishing, which is you don't want to be work for a company that publishes Mike Pence, where are you gonna go? I mean, in a very sort of BATNA or you know, best alternative no agreement that's a tr- term of art from getting to yes which is a negotiating book we read as a company <laughs> but like what what are you going to do assuming that i don't want to do the thing you're going to do and we're really in a zero-sum game you, you either you're going to go or you're going to stay where are you going to go and yeah. that augurs, augurs argues for more diversity in publishing of all kinds so that there's yeah. more options for more people um to go to all right let's take one last break and a couple of book riot pieces I want to talk about. I don't know if you had okay. a chance to look at these at all this morning. I but, didn't. Uh, uh, kind of interesting stuff here. Um, Sarah Nicholas wrote a piece for us last week that I thought was really good and would be of interest to, especially to the listeners of this podcast, called How Much Do Authors Make Per Book? As we're getting into mm. the sort of the, the dollars and cents of what publishing looks like, she talked to a whole bunch of different writers herself, bridging off this Authors Guild survey um, but she talked to mainstream, independent, anonymous, um, on the record, and really, I think, in a way that was more illuminating to me than just a survey with a bunch of averages mm-hmm. and datas. Um, Jim Hines, a popular science fiction author. Um, yeah, just just a lot of people that are on here. Um, to hear their stories and what their advances were and how much they saw... I think actually is a whole that's greater than the sum of its parts. Like looking at the range of anecdotes is that there, the, the answer is 
it can vary from nothing to something is, mm-hmm. is the answer. But how much that variance is and what it looks like, what we're talking about here, um, from self-published romance to books that have been picked by Book of the Month Club, we didn't get a real high flyer here. We didn't get, I mean, as you might expect, we didn't get someone with a million-dollar advance or does a billion different kinds of things. But some, you know, five-figure, six-figure-ish kinds of advances to some things were here. And I think it's worth looking at. And as a general reader, there's not much you can do about this, um, I think. But when into the there are too many books statement I made Mm -hmm. earlier, I think the other side of that or a side of that is, well, is it better for authors that make very little not to have their books published at all? Because that's that's kind of the other side of what I'm asking for, right? If there's if there's too few too many books, that means there should be fewer books, which means there shouldn't be as many books being published, which must mean that some people that are currently having their books published being published, quote unquote, shouldn't. And even if you make a thousand dollars or nothing on a book that you want to make, that's not my decision to make for you. Go crazy, you know that that's up to you yeah. to make. It does have this the problem of there's a lot of would we rather a few fewer authors making more or more authors making fewer and who's to decide is a question that there's no czar of publishing to make a decision about. But it, I thought it wasn't helpful to me to see. I don't know. I guess if you like writing books and it's part of your gig and you make two thousand dollar advances, but you've had fifteen of them. I I'm not sure what to do with it, but it was just a reminder of how big and small and atomized the publishing world is because these are these are numbers that publishers never going to tell us we have to have right. authors tell us this and this is not representative except it's the most representative <laughs> of um of what we have so i highly recommend you look at it just to see the range um one that i i read my kids and i have read um the yasmin series by um sadia faruqi um mm. it's a middle grade maybe sort of to early reader um it's great and it's um and she has written 16 books in the yasmin series again these are like 699 i don't even know what format there are but they're a soft cover but she makes 35 to 45 thousand dollars a year with small advances and then fifteen thousand dollars a year from speaking engagements so looking at how you know, these authors put together how different it is for a children's author where like the speaking engagements talking to schools $500 at a time, you know, mm-hmm. once a week is a huge part of what goes into that as well. Try, people making the switch um, to full time um, middle grade author with a big five publisher is Anonymous Quinn signed a two book deal for $150,000 and then a third book for sixty five. Uh, and then quit their full-time job. So it sounds like mm-hmm. a lot, right? Oh, $210,000 for three books. Well, if it takes you two years per book, you're looking at $210,000 $210, over six years. Mm-hmm. $35,000, $40,000, okay. Before your agents, <laughs> before, <Right. laughs> you know, before, and, you know, before, t- I mean, that's how we think about these things. But a six-figure advance for three books is a working person. You know, that's a work, you know, that's, that's a blue collar job kind of a salary that goes into it. So I think that's important to to think about as well. And I'm not, I felt like I've, I felt like something affected me about this differently. And I've seen these, we've talked about these over time, but something affected me differently here. And I think it was just a litany of personal experiences. Mm -hmm. You're real humans that are trying to make a living as a writer, um, 
And it's hard. And I don't know what to do about that, Rebecca. I'm, I'm, I'm defining myself very much like I knew all this, but presented a different way. I'm feeling like I don't know what to say about any of this. So I highly recommend taking a peek at it. I will I will jump into that. I think, you know, we've talked several times over the years about how one of the great sort of unspoken secrets or of publishing, if you don't work in publishing, is that most writers don't make enough to be full-time writers, even if you're a, a relatively big name. A lot mm-hmm. of folks still have teaching jobs or they're doing speaking gigs or whatever, precisely because even if you're putting out a book every three or four years, that advance has to be big enough to float you for three or four years of life expenses in order to quit the day job or the side hustle or whatever it may be. And I think, you know, there are many more people who want to be published authors than there is space, than there is demand for in the market. So, which you know, is one of those things that it feels bad to tell an aspiring writer, but it comes back to like, you can, you can self-publish, but like you, no one has a right to be a big fancy published author in the same way that like, no one has a right to be the next NBA star, Mm -hmm. but a whole lot of kids want to be. And that's just one of the realities of the industry of any competitive, especially creative industry. Not everybody gets to be Bono. Some mm-hmm. people are in garage bands. And if you, if the passion of creating the art is the thing that's driving you, like go to town and write your books and do this thing that, you know, make the thing that you feel like you have to make. But yeah. the commercial aspect of it is much more complicated than what you want to see happen. And self-publishing has changed that a lot, but I think it's also given a lot of folks the idea that they can become best-selling authors or that they're just getting the book published means that you will be successful and raking in the money mm-hmm. in a way that isn't a realist isn't a realistic expectation for anybody becoming an author unless you're one of those you know very select few who get big book deals over and over in a way that is sustaining in the long term. Yeah. One of the more interesting anecdotes kind of that, that straddles the line of the things you were just talking about there is an anecdote here. Ari, this is a pseudonym, is a self-published romance author with 50 plus books who makes a high six figures each year. Mm. 50 plus books. Here's right. the other thing. Spends up to $8,000 per book on editing covers and promotion. And that excludes travel to promote the book. So that's that person is a I think self-publishing, that didn't even really describe what this person is doing. They're a publisher of one, right? $8,000 mm-hmm. a book on editing, including travel. With that many books, you are a publisher of one. And that's a hell of a lot of work to do multiple and, books per year. It sounds like maybe a book a yeah. quarter over well, 10 for, years to get that that many. For them or for a traditionally published author who puts out a book every year mm-hmm. or two, unless you get really lucky and you become one of those authors whose books sell long term, most of your sales are going to happen in the first year or two that the book is new. And what happens after that? Mm -hmm. You know, like what happens to your day job after that um, is a real question and concern that I have for how like writers conferences present how to build your career as an author. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like probably the smart thing is to build a different career and be an author on the side for a very long time. I mean, that's the that seems to be a lot of the a lot of people just have to do it that way. Um, you can be a published author, tradi- let's even say traditionally published author, and still have a day job. Like you know, these are famous stories. I don't have to tell anyone, but T.S. Eliot, Wallace Stevens, they had day jobs, you know, for most of their life. And you can write on the side, which is you can't do to try to be a professional NBA player or a professional, right. you know, a lot of different other kinds of things like that. Um, it did make me think about 
the you know the the ethical book buying question we talk about and even this today I was talking about in terms of um uh oh, what we were just talking about oh the the ideal reader the ideal book buyer who buys a hardcover um at an independent bookstore for full cover price like what are we actually talking are we actually talking about how you want to, so you're let's say you're spending twenty eight dollars on a hard you, you have let me put it differently um an average book riot survey respondent we did this once read 78 books a year which is a crazy high number <laughs> bananas high number again as you might expect from our site i'm assuming that doesn't represent books that they all bought necessarily of themselves but let's let's break it down let's say they buy half of them so 35 books a year they're buying and let's say that um they did spend tw- th- let's say 30 dollars each on it so we're looking at oh 1400 dollars or something like that a year in books Let's say that's your book buying budget for the year, $1,400. If you're interested in the health of publishing, the health of the, not even, the health of the creation of books, let's say, that's what you're interested in. What's the ideal distribution of those dollars? I think it's a question we don't ask enough because if you buy an independent bookstore, 40% goes to that bookstore, which is great if you want 40% of your dollars to support the bookstore, which you might. That's great. But if you are more interested in sort of getting dollars closer to the metal of where the books are made, probably buying self-published books gets more dollars into authors' pockets, which is a fascinating way. I haven't really thought about it in that kind mm-hmm. of regard. Um, but this will really bring home to you all the different ways that books and dollars get into people's pockets. The other thing you'll be reminded of, which I'm reminded of all the time working in this job or working at all as an American, is how much health insurance comes into play Ugh. and people decide how to do things. Um, so... Anyway, I just wanted to shout that out there. I guess the last thing story here, and I'd wondered about this. Emily Winstrom wrote a piece for us um, also last week. Um, NFTs for books. Um, I don't know if people have been following NFTs, non-fungible tokens. It's a little bit. It's a little bit confusing. Um, but basically, there's a definition that Emily includes here from Forbes. An NFT is simply a record of who owns a unique piece of digital content. That content can be anything from art, music, graphics, tweets, memes, games, you name it. As long as it's digital and it was created, it can be an NFT. Non-fungible because it can't be readily exchanged for a similar good at a similar price. So basically, you're getting a, the right to say that this is my digital content and it's not just one of a million copies of something else, right? This is the the this is a number. It could be like a signed poster, almost, as a way to think about, right? You could rep. You see, we all. My, my parents and their group of friends, Ansel Adams prints were like the the. It was the oh, live, yeah. laugh, love of you know the '90s doctors in small town Kansas, um, but you could just reprint them. But these were numbered editions, right? So it's not just reprinted from Target. This is a signed one out of a 500 by Ansel Adams. And that's different than one that you just get at Target, right? And why it's different because it's scarcity. It's the same thing, but this is scarce. And non-fungible tokens are another way of thinking about this. I'd recommend reading Emily's piece, but there's this idea that you could, for example, sell if you're a self-published author or any kind of an author of any kind, you could sell digital content as an nft for example Hmm. let's say um i have a huge fan base i'm stephen king and i wanted to sell the digital manuscript of my most recent book right and auction it off and that a super fan or collector whatever would get my would get the digital token to the digital manuscript of what was the last one that institute which is a big one 
And they would get a lump sum payment for that. You know, artists are trying to think about this. Musicians are trying to think about all these people who are content creators are thinking, how can they cash in on this? Hasn't seen talked about as much as books, but you and I talked about a long time ago how to capitalize on, capitalize is maybe too pejorative, but how to give buyers something they might want that would support something an author does, like a premium edition. This is what kind of Patreon is doing in a lot of ways, give something else. But I thought this was a super fascinating idea to think about. There's this whole space of like, the super premium content around a book. One of the great things I love about books, frankly, is that if new Toni Morrison, well, no, I just said a new Toni Morrison novel could come out. No, it can't. I mean, I guess unless there's something in the, in a new Colson Whitehead book comes out, you're going to have the same textual experiences as someone who gets it from the library or someone who gets assigned first edition. The reading experience is going to be the same, but there's demand out there for specialness, for rarity, for, you know, that, that that penumbra of glow that comes with the specialness of, of something being limited, would it be, and this kind of connects to authors not making it that much money, Is that, could they make as much money selling the NFT number one thing of their new book as all the royalties for the books that comes after? I think it's possible. So I was just going to put this out there as something that I was curious to think about. If anyone's heard of this or would you buy you know, a um, NFT of one one of 10 of the new, I'm just trying to think, I'm not you, Rebecca, necessarily, but <laughs> readers out there, like if there were a special NFT and there's only five of them for the new Colson Whitehead or pick your favorite author, mm-hmm. is this something you'd be interested in participating in? Because I could see it being a complete zero or actually being entering the firmament of the way authors stitch together their livelihoods. That's outside of having to give their publisher 60% or That's, whatever. Or, you know, I, I find very, very interesting. It's going to be super interesting. I think I'm going to do some sort of NFT something at some point just to experiment with it and experience it and see. I don't know that I would start off with right. the Colson Whitehead one. And hope that it was just going to magically work out in my favor. <laughs> right, right, right. You know, there's there's, there's a lot of secondary things about, you know, the energy cost because it uses blockchain, generally speaking. And I, yeah. and I totally get that. I'm assuming for the moment that the concept of the, MFT, the NFT versus any particular implementation of it could be divorced. Like Bitcoin is not the same as all cryptocurrencies. And there's some things that take fewer. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. and we're, you know, we're like 10 or 15 years into talking about Bitcoin in some capacity yeah. now and NFTs are a really new conversation. So what this might look like in a decade is likely going to be different and evolved. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So anyway, right. I, I thought that was that was something I hadn't seen talked about in the NFT speculative bubble that's going on out there. But yeah, I can see how I can see how that might be something for people to explore in some kind of way. So anyway, well, I think that's our show. We're running a little bit long here. Um, podcast uh, at bookriot.com. If you've got feedback, fill out the survey. Tell us what you have and haven't read. Bookriot.com slash listen. You can navigate to the show notes to see the stories we talked about. This and all back episodes of the Book Riot podcast. Our next, our next transmission, um, be our summer movie. Uh, summer, I'm mixing them up. <laughs> our summer book draft, where Rebecca and I again, once yes. again, entered the arena against each other to pick books competitively <laughs> in a very abstract way. And we're asking you then to email us with your vote about which of us has created the best, most interesting summer book bundle for an abstract reader. Boy, we're really bending over backwards great this year. Um, and you can begrudgingly vote for me if you would like, as what's happened last time, or you can follow your heart 
and vote for Rebecca as it seemed like Rude. most of you wanted to do. <laughs> you know what? Even if I win this one, I'm not sure it's going to taste as sweet as it should. The, so you and me both, sister. I've salted the ground. I've salted the earth for both of us on this. Standing on that salty ground together, at least. <laughs> it was. It's always. It's. A, it was a fun episode, um, and uh, you'll hear us talk about that. And then some of the books are going to make it onto our favorite books of the. At least some of them are, I mm-hmm. think, um, for sure. So, looking for that, Rebecca. Thank you for flexibility this week. Yes, and uh, we'll good talk to, to be you back. Soon. Have a good All one. Right, cheers.